Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the, running, to the London School of Economics for the Runnymede Trust Jim Rose Memorial Lecture. My name is Claire Alexander, and I'm in the Department of Sociology here at the LSE, and I'm also a trustee of the Runnymede Trust. The Sociology Department is delighted to be co-hosting this important event with Runnymede for the second year, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight for this important and landmark lecture revisiting the Runnymede Trust's Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain report 10 years on. We're of course particularly pleased and honoured to have the Commission's Chair, Professor Lord Biku Parekh, with us tonight for what promises to be another important, timely and thought-provoking intervention. The LSE and the Department of Sociology both have a long history of research around issues of social exclusion and inequality and a commitment to public engagement. Research on race, racism and ethnicity is a key strand of the department's current research and teaching and we share that commitment to bringing research outside the walls of the academy. So we very much welcome our collaboration with the Runnymede Trust in recent years. We have an exciting Masters in Race, Ethnicity and Postcolonial Studies, now in its third year, and we have a dedicated group of doctoral research students who are engaged in researching race in the UK but also in the Middle East, Canada, Bangladesh, Italy, and Germany. The Runnymede Report on the Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain was a landmark moment in the struggle for race equality in Britain. It marked what the report itself termed a turning point in the way that which Britain thought of itself, although with the benefit of hindsight, perhaps not in the way the commissioners originally envisioned. It's true, I think, to say that it was the product of a more optimistic moment, built on the promises of New Labour's commitment to tackling race equality, following on from the Macpherson Report, the Race Relations Amendment Act, the very short-lived celebration of Cool Britannia and of chicken tikka masala as Britain's national dish. The report argued then that Britain was at a crossroads and faced with two possible routes to the future. The first, a Britain where people are divided and fragmented and where there's hostility, suspicion and wasteful competition, the politics of resentment, a punitive and impatient attitude to the poor and widespread intolerance of minorities of many kinds. The second, where Britain could develop as a community of communities at ease with its place within the world society and with its own internal differences. Not one would think a particularly difficult choice. Unfortunately, in the light of sub subsequent events, the 2001 riots, the war on terror, 7-7, and the much vaunted death of multiculturalism, it seems we chose the darker route. We find ourselves 10 years on in a situation where not only have our aspirations for race equality not been fulfilled, but it seems they're no longer even on the agenda. In this climate, a re-engagement with the issues raised by the Runnymede Report becomes even more urgent, and we're delighted to work alongside the Runnymede Trust and in memory of the work of Jim Rose in reshaping the future of multi-ethnic Britain for the next 10 years. I want to thank you then for coming tonight, particularly Pam Rose, and our distinguished speaker, Biku Parekh, and it's my pleasure to introduce Clive Jones, Chair of the Runnymede Trust. Thank you, Claire, and uh, thank you, LSE, for again providing us with this uh, magnificent lecture hall. I did my first degree here in the 1960s, and this old theatre brings back a lot of memories of 
fevered debate and student protest, something which delightfully seems to be back in fashion with our new coalition government. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, High Commissioner, welcome to the fifth Jim Rose Memorial Lecture. The Runnymede Trust holds this lecture every two years in honour of Jim, one of our founding fathers and our chair for 10 years from 1980. The Trust literally would not exist without him and we owe him an enormous debt. A Bletchley Park intelligence officer, journalist, publisher, a writer, a campaigner, he is one of those truly unusual men who crammed three or four careers into one long life, yet always found time to care for his family, his innumerable friends, and for the causes and organizations he was passionate about. And among those, fortunately for us, unfortunately for this country, were equality and Runnymede. Jim's widow Pam and his daughter Emma are here with us in the audience tonight and again it's a delight to welcome you here both. But let me now introduce you to our distinguished lecturer uh, and our distinguished lecturer Lord Bhikkhu Parikh. Born in India, uh, Bhikkhu was admitted to the University of Bombay at the tender age of 15. Um, after his time in Bombay, he came to London University and is now a professor of political philosophy at the University of Westminster. The author of innumerable books, Lord Parrick has also received many awards throughout his career. The Sir Isaiah Bullen Prize for a lifetime contribution to political philosophy by the Political Studies Association. The Distinguished Global Thinker Award by the India International Centre Delhi. BBC's Special Lifetime Achievement Award, the Independence Prize from the Campaign for Democracy, the Profasi Bharataya Saman, and the Padma Bhushan in 2007. He holds 20 honorary doctorates. I don't know, one. <laughs> and in 2007, he delivered the annual lecture of the UK Gandhi Foundation, of which he is a patron. And until recently, he was the centennial professor here at the LSE. He's been a visiting professor at several universities, including McGill, Harvard, Pennsylvania, Barcelona, Paris, and Vienna. And he was vice chancellor of the University of Baroda from 1981 to 1984. And of course, he was appointed a life peer in 2000. Lord Baron Parrick of Kingston upon Hull in the East Riding of Yorkshire. As Claire has indicated, he was chair of the Runnymede Commission on the Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain from 1998 until this enormously influential report was published two years later in the year 2000. Tonight, a decade later, ten years on, he's going to reflect on that report and consider the key issues he and his fellow commissioners identified then in the context of Austerity Britain in 2010. Hold on to your hats. This is going to be illuminating, informative, funny, and never more relevant. Ladies and gentlemen, Lord Parrot. Well, Clive, thank you for those extremely kind words. Just one uh, correction, if I may. I haven't been lucky enough to get 20 honorary doctorates. I have, I'm stuck at 12, 
and maybe you might be able to persuade eight universities to make the, your draft prediction come true. <laughs> it's a great honor to be uh, invited uh, by the Runnymede Trust to deliver the Jim Rose Memorial Lecture. I first met Jim in 1977 when we were both members of the Rampton Committee and later Swan Committee of Inquiry into the educational uh, problems, especially the Afro-Caribbean uh, children. Jim was then a widely revered figure in Britain because of, among other things, uh, the seminal report that he had produced called Color and Citizenship in 1969. He was passionately committed to fighting racism in all its forms and making Britain a humane and integrated society on liberal and egalitarian grounds. I suggested to Jim in the early 1990s that it might be a good idea to, make the, to mark the 25th anniversary of color uh, and citizenship by taking a fresh look at the current racial situation in Britain in the light of new circumstances, new insights offered by the social science research and the experiences of other societies such as Canada and Australia. His response was most enthusiastic. The Runnymede Trust generous, generously agreed to sponsor the uh, project and raise the necessary funds. The commission was set up first under the chairmanship of Sir John Berg and then mine and included some of the finest minds of Britain drawn from different walks of life and representing different points uh, on the political and ideological spectrum, excepting the racists. It included Kate Gavron, Stuart Hall, Sir Bob Heppel, Andrew Marr, who in fact uh, wrote large parts of our report, Lord Dolakia, Trevor Phillips, uh, Anne Overs, Yasmin Alibai Brown, Sir Peter Newsom, Chief Constable Matthew McFarlane, and many other equally eminent men and women. Jim Rose took keen interest in the Commission's composition and deliberations. He attended uh, many of our seminars and public uh, consultations where he was eagerly sought out by young scholars who had heard his name, who held him in the highest esteem, but, had, but never had the privilege of seeing him in flesh. Sadly, he died a year before the publication of our report. Although I would not claim that he would have agreed with all the details of the report, I can say with some confidence that he was sympathetic to its basic thrust. It is only right that uh, the 10th anniversary of our report should be dedicated to him. The report has been in the public domain for 10 years, and it has spawned an extensive literature, including over 30 articles, as many chapters in books, and so on. Its content is widely known, and there is no point in uh, rehearsing it today. It was subjected to criticism, some rather hysterical, and based mainly on the misunderstanding of a couple of rather unguarded comments that we had made in the report. This too is widely known and written about, and it would serve no purpose today to reiterate or answer those criticisms, or even to examine what lessons we have learned from our entry into the political marketplace. I have written about my own experiences of sharing the commission and receiving those criticisms at length, and so have many others, and those interested can consult those writings. I thought the best way to mark the 10th anniversary of the report 
and to honor the memory of a remarkable man, Jim Rose, and the excellent work of the Runnymede Trust, would be to do the following. To explore some of the big questions that are beginning to appear on the public agenda today, so far as the multi-ethnic Britain is concerned. And what would need to be, and, and which, the, and these questions which would need to be examined by a future sequel to our report. Many of these big questions were addressed in our report, but we could not have anticipated all, and even those we did, we discussed in a different historical and political context. I wish to explore some of these issues today in some length, bearing in mind what we, have said in a, what we had said in our report, but also going beyond that. There are three or four questions, depending on how much time I have and how quickly I go through this. There are three or four big questions that I think we need to address. The first has to do with the role of religion in public life. It is increasingly becoming, beginning to dominate the public discussion. This is not limited to Muslims, many of whom have in fact reconciled themselves to the fact that they have to live in a secular state. The challenge rather is mounted by Christian leaders. You will recall the 35 senior figures of the Church of England, the Catholic Church and other denominations issued what they called a declaration of conscience about a year or so ago. It was modeled on the Manhattan Declaration drawn up uh, by American Christian leaders and signed subsequently by half a million supporters. The Declaration of Conscience in Britain said that its uh, signatories will not, and I quote, be intimidated by any political power that uh, overrules or overrides its Christian beliefs. And the Declaration also advocated civil disobedience if these Christian beliefs were to be violated. It said that Christianity was being marginalized and excluded from the public sphere in this country by a form of secularism that was, and I quote, as bigoted and narrow-minded as the worst form of doctrinaire Christianity. Some Christian leaders argued that the state should be neutral and not secular. Others argued that even neutrality was unacceptable because it treated Christianity on a par with other religions and denied the central place that it had occupied and continues to occupy in British life. As the foretest uh, of their unease, some of them even mounted a formidable opposition to the human rights legislation, or certainly the human rights legislation as it came to be implemented, on the ground that these rights were being used to undermine traditional Christian views on homosexuality. It was argued that these rights were in fact intended to serve a secular or anti-religious agenda. Their opposition, the opposition of Christian leaders, was fierce when the Labour administration brought in measures requiring publicly funded adoption agencies not to discriminate against gay couples. Catholic adoption, adoption agencies either had to uh, comply or close or find alternative sources of funding which became difficult. The same issue came up when the Labour Administration required that the churches may not discriminate against gay couples when applying for jobs of a secular nature. When such questions, or some of these questions, came up before the court, 
they did not quite know how to conceptualize and respond to them. The case of Gay McFarlane is a good example of this. He was a marriage guidance, cons marriage guidance counselor of strong religious beliefs and refused to administer uh, sex therapy to homosexual couples. He was sad and he appealed to the Employment Appeal Tribunal which upheld the lower court's judgment. His appeal went, uh, he ap appealed against uh, the uh, Employment Appeal Tribunal and the matter was uh, discussed by Lord Justice Laws and dismissed. His appeal was dismissed on the ground that his religious beliefs were purely, and I quote, subjective and bound no one other than him and others of his belief. Lord Justice Laws said that to enforce this belief would amount to theocracy which had no place in Britain. This was a strange piece of reasoning because all moral beliefs are in some sense subjective including those of conscientious objectors which we nevertheless respect. In response to this uh, judgment uh, Lord Carey, retired Archbishop of Canterbury and others, demanded that in future religious matters should be tried by religiously sensitive judges and not by all and sundry. We know where that's likely to lead. So this is one important question. The way in which religion has increasingly begun to dominate, uh, begun to appear and certainly to dominate some areas of our public life. And it raises uh, all kinds of questions. But before I turn to that, my fear is that the Prime Minister's big society is also likely to see the resurgence of religion in Britain. As he offloads the welfare state, voluntary bodies would need to step in to do the required work and churches will be at the forefront of these voluntary bodies. And that is going to involve a very complicated formal and informal relationship between the state and religion. Now this uh, raises a large number of questions. What is a religious belief? Are we right to privilege religious beliefs in a way that we do? If somebody said this was his sincerely or deeply held religious beliefs, does that put belief beyond rational scrutiny and criticism? And does it enjoin an obligation on the part of the state to defer to it or to respect it in some way? At a different level, should we allow religious arguments or religious form of reasoning uh, on secular issues such as assisted suicide? What kind of secular state do we need which can respect and accommodate religion without losing its fundamental secular character? Do we need a new historical settlement between state and religion to replace the earlier one between the state and church and which is already in place? So, these are some of the questions we are going to have to face in the next five years or ten years. The second question has to do with the best way to balance the demands of social cohesion and those of respect for cultural diversity. Britain needs to be a reasonably cohesive society if it is to be stable and sustain its democratic institutions and the welfare state. At the same time it's a multicultural society in the sense that its citizens take different views on the good life, on intergender relations, on legitimate forms of sexual fulfillment, <laughs> structure of the family, and the number of other issues. These differences often have cultural origins 
and are bound up with the cultural identity of their bearers. Human beings, now I would have, I want to argue that, human, that cultural identity, certainly within certain limits, deserves to be respected for several reasons. Human beings are not only generic beings or members of the human species, but they are also culturally embedded and heirs to particular cultural and religious traditions which act as a moral compass in their lives and as sources of meaning and significance. Not that these cultures are, not that they are imprisoned within their culture and cannot revise and reject it, but rather than even when they reject it, they do so by embracing another and cannot live in a transcendental culture-free realm altogether. Given the fact that human beings are both cultural and human, respect for them requires respect both for their humanity and for, their, uh, for the culture within which they are embedded. There are also other reasons for respecting people's cultural identity. Cultural identity adds to the resource, to the uh, richness of collective life, expands our range of uh, choices, expands the range of imagination by generating new ideas and new insights into our common problems. Respecting cultural identity also makes people feel valued, removes or attenuates their sense of anxiety, and both nurtures their sense of commitment to the wider society and facilitates their integration into it. This means that both social cohesion and cultural differences, both unity and diversity, make claims on us. We need unity in society, but not of a kind that suppresses or mocks identity, because such unity will remain inherently fragile. And equally, we should value diversity, but not of a kind, or in a manner that undermines or weakens unity, because an unstable and insecure society lacks the confidence to, re to respect and live with differences. We discussed this question of balancing unity and diversity at length in our report. This is how we formulated the problem. How can we create a Britain in which the spirit of civil partnership, civic partnership, shared identity and common belonging goes hand in hand with respect for diversity? Or, in another formulation we said, is it possible to reimagine Britain as a nation in a multicultural way. I am convinced that the answer that we gave in the report is substantially correct. And I want to go through some of the points that we made in the report and which I will be prepared to defend. Our answer to the question, how can we imagine Britain as a nation in a multicultural way, was as follows. Over the centuries, Britain has developed a democratic structure and is held together by allegiance to its legal and political institutions. These institutions make it the kind of country it is and constitutes its uh, focus, the focus of its collective life. Basic loyalty to Britain, or at least acceptance of these institutions, is the sine qua non of citizenship and constitutes a basic obligation on all its citizens. There are certain values which, are, which have long been or have increasingly become an integral part of British society. These values are normatively binding, not because they are ours, 
because many of our values on critical reflection might turn out to be discriminatory or unacceptable. <coughs> These values that obtain are normatively binding because we can give good reasons for them. And we can show why these values should be respected by all, or if not by all, certainly why we have decided to respect them in our society. These include such values as mutual respect, tolerance, peaceful resolution of differences, equality of human worth, racial and gender equality, and individual liberty and free speech. These values help us decide the range of permissible diversity. Those practices of the, of the minority communities or even the majority community that violate them are suspect. And depending on the gravity uh, of their violation of these values, they might be discouraged or even banned altogether. For example, arranged marriages are allowed, but not forced marriages, because they violate the important value of individual equality and liberty. The permissible range of diversity also informs the application of common laws and values. For example, no marriage is valid if it is entered into under duress. But what is duress? What constitutes duress in one cultural community might not be so in another. Or in law we talk about individual sense of agency or responsibility. But how do you determine an individual sense of responsibility and what are its limits? In a community, for example, where women have been conditioned to act uh, in a very obedient and obsequious manner, a woman who is asked to carry drugs might be forgiven, uh, whereas uh, in another society she might not be. On the ground, the, the nature of agency and the limits of agency are culturally shaped and therefore have to be defined in a culturally sensitive manner. In other words, equal treatment may, under certain circumstances, involve different or differential treatment without being discriminatory. In our report, we also went on to argue that public institutions enjoy popular legitimacy and moral authority and discharge their functions more effectively when they, re when they reflect social diversity. Minority presence in public institutions is important, not for its own sake, but because it enables them to identify with those institutions and allows those institutions to represent a wide variety of views and experiences. Therefore, for example, it is right that political parties, civil service, parliament, the judiciary need to examine their procedure, their language, their assumptions to see if they contain biases that might work against certain groups. We saw that recently when the number of MPs standing at 13 in 1997, just before our report was written, rose to 27 in, in 2010, simply because political parties, especially the conservatives, began to look at their procedures and decided to revise them because they were found to be prejudicial to the minorities. The plurality of, uh, the, the, this is the vision of Britain that we advocated, recognition of cultural differences and political space being opened up to accommodate minorities uh, and uh, to enable them to interact with each other and with a wider society. This pluralist or multicultural vision of Britain has a liberal thrust, but it also widens and deepens liberalism so as to make it more hospitable to cultural differences than it has traditionally, than has traditionally been the case. Multiculturalism, as we defined it, 
And here we enter into controversial territories, but uh, that's exactly what I want to do. The report was intended to be controversial. Multiculturalism, as we defined and, and, and explained in the report, which is what I have just outlined, is not open to the criticism that have frequently or that are being frequently made of it. It does not, for example, imply cultural relativism or an attitude of moral laissez-faire or anything goes in the name of culture because it recognizes the constraints of common values that each culture should meet. It doesn't imply cultural ghettoization either. It doesn't mean that each culture lives within its own bounds. Rather, it encourages intercultural dialogue and seeks to foster a climate in which every cultural community feels relaxed and confident enough to interact with others and help evolve a rich and internally differentiated common culture. Again, multiculturalism does not mean fragmentation of society. In fact, the opposite. Because the idea behind is to ease the transition of a minority or diffident cultures and facilitate their integration into the wider society. Nor is multiculturalism excessively preoccupied or obsessed with culture with or cultural issues. Because we need equality of opportunity and equality of life chances if different cultural communities are going to engage in equal interaction and help redefine their common identity. This view of multiculturalism that we uh, outlined in the report is not our invention or is not a matter of what philosophers call stipulative definition. It builds on the tradition of discourse, post-war discourse, which was initiated by Roy Jenkins in his famous definition of integration where you say the integration doesn't mean turning out carbon copies of somebody's imaginary Englishman. This view of multiculturalism was also explored uh, and defended more fully by Lord Swan uh, in his appropriately titled report called Education for All. It is also in consonance with our own practices, such as involving all major religious communities in national ceremonies and events or as reflected in Prince Charles's remark that if he became king, he wished to be defender of faith rather than the faith. I want to maintain that multiculturalism understood in this way has served Britain well. It has reassured minorities that they need not fear aggressive cultural assimilation. And it has averted the siege mentality amongst minorities that their French counterparts have felt. It has also at the same time reassured the majority community that it need not fear loss of its historically inherited identity or its, its control over its own affairs. It has also led to greater cultural sensitivity and that has improved the language of public discourse. In France, for example, even now its immigrants are often told, go back to your country. Or in Germany, you would have seen recently Masul Ozil, who uh, was a star soccer player uh, in the German team which won. Even when he's integrated, he's referred to quite often as a plastic German. That is a manufactured German, not the authentic original German, because he, didn't, he was not born of German parents. This kind of language, I suggest, would be unthinkable in today's Britain. And we need to ask how and why that kind of cultural sensitivity has developed. Or even taking an example from our own country. About 20-25 years ago it was quite common 
for politicians, especially uh, the likes of Mrs. Thatcher, to say, to talk about our kith and kin abroad, meaning our kith and kin in Australia and New Zealand. That too would sound very strange and bizarre today, and we need to ask why. What has changed such that the idea of referring to our kith and kin in Australia or New Zealand would sound utterly improper without anyone having legislated against it? Having learned to respect our own minorities and cultures settled in our midst, we have also become more sensitive to other societies in our globalizing multicultural world, and we display less of the old imperial hubris. David Cameron, when he went to India in his speech, and the High Commissioner would correct me if I am wrong, said, I have come to this country in great humility in the spirit of wanting to learn. What he learned, I am not sure, but the whole language would have been unthinkable. And the same sort of thing he said more recently in his, uh, during his visit to China. I would even uh, therefore uh, be tempted to conclude that our multiculturalism, as we have defined uh, it in our report, has improved not only our cuisine, and our arts and literature, but also our manners, and to some extent our morals or moral attitudes. Now, as I said earlier, multiculturalism involves balancing diversity and commonality, such that diversity facilitates integration and comes to be cherished as our collective moral and cultural capital. Now, that balance is not always easy to strike. Sometimes there is a tendency to go too far in one direction or the other. And that has happened with us too. Sometimes we have gone too far in the direction of diversity, panicked and swung to the other extreme. Sometimes we did the opposite. We insisted on, on conformity where it was not necessary. Protests came and we swung back to a more balanced position. This is an inevitable part of the process of learning how to strike a right balance. Nations learn as do individuals. After all, this is a new experience in human history for all societies. Because all societies are multicultural and they all need to find ways of reconciling these two uh, conflicting demands. And occasional mistakes are bound to occur. But the answer lies not in rejecting multiculturalism, because there is simply no moral or political alternative. The answer lies rather in finding a better way of balancing the demands of unity and diversity. Because the only alternative that I can think of is the French model. And so that's not viable as the French themselves are beginning to realize. And if pushed too far, it can lead to a situation where you can't wear a hijab or a burqa uh, on the bus or in the public square or when you are shopping. That is the logic of that kind of argument. Angela Merkel recently said that multiculturalism had failed in Germany. And when I looked at her speech and asked myself what is the evidence on which it is based, I found that she was pointing to two things. First, that the Turkish immigrants are not learning German. Well, I asked myself what that has got to do with multiculturalism. Because uh, in all educational institutions, it is to be expected that people would learn the local language. And she also said, secondly, that multiculturalism has failed because it had led to ghettos. But the ghettos didn't arise simply because people were multicultural. The ghettos arose because of economic disadvantages. In Britain also, I think there is a tendency to uh, blame multiculturalism for all kinds of things. Some genuine, because they point out to certain uh, mistakes that we have occasionally made uh, in going too far uh, in the direction of diversity. But 
I cannot see, as I said earlier, any kind of alternative to the need to balance appropriately the demands of diversity and uh, uh, unity. Sometimes we are told, and this brings me to my second point, uh, uh, third issue that is coming up in Britain has to do with the problems uh, of terrorism. Now this is a difficult uh, issue and I want to deal with it only in so far as it is associated with some form of multiculturalism. Terrorism of a small group of young Muslims needs to be placed in a social and cultural context. Young Muslims underachieve educationally and are among the poorest. Over half, of them are, uh, over half of them live in areas with the most deprived housing conditions compared to 20% of the total population and their unemployment rate is twice the national average. Nearly 70% of Muslim children live in poverty and receive state support and some 36% of them leave school without qualifications. These socio-economic disadvantages are compounded by the experiences of discrimination and marginalization. Young Muslims are also alienated from their parental culture, which the eyes do not understand or find conservative, backward, restrictive and not a source of pride. There is often limited emotional intimacy between parents and children and very little meaningful conversation. Not surprisingly, Many parents and elderly family members admit ignorance of what their younger members are thinking or feeling or doing as was confirmed in the case of some of those involved in the London terrorist attacks in July uh, 2005. So detached from their parental and British cultures, alienated young Muslims tend to form their own groups based on a shared subculture of defiance and victimhood. Some turn to drug trafficking, prostitution, gang welfare, warf uh, warfare and petty crimes. It is striking that young Muslims form 9% of the prison population, which is considerably higher than amongst their white counterparts. Many of those who avoid crime turn to Islam to give them a sense of dignity and identity, a particularly noticeable trend among college and university students. Freed from the ethnic, national and other ties and turning to religion as the sole basis of their identity, young Muslims are available for mobilization by militant groups with a global agenda. The pursuit of global causes gives them a sense of power, a purpose, a thrill, a sense of belonging and a ready network of support and friends. The biased Western foreign policies, the invasion of Iraq and the scandals of Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay give their anger a moral edge and intensify their sense of victimhood. Reclaiming Muslim youth, so I would suggest that the uh, problem, the causes of the problem have to do not only with their social, with socio-economic factors, but also with the way in which Islam has come to be defined among some uh, young uh, Muslim youth, and also the way in which they live in a world of their own where they are cut off both from the parental culture and from the British culture. Now, reclaiming Muslim youth requires addressing, some, addressing these and other factors and is the joint responsibility of both Muslim communities and the wider societies. I want now to turn to the third question uh, that I think also uh, requires quite a bit of attention. And that has to do with our shared identity or what is clumsily called Britishness. The Prime Minister put the point well when he said in the recent speech, and I quote, just as Britons change, so subtly will Britishness. 
when outsiders come to settle in a country, the identity of that country can no longer remain the same. It needs to be redefined so as to accommodate uh, others. This is never a smooth process. Since national identity is ultimately about the ownership of the country, about who does and does not belong to it, and whose interests and claims deserve to be given priority, every definition of national identity becomes a site of contestation between those who think the country is theirs and those who want to share that ownership. The history of the United, the United States provides a good example of this. For decades after its foundation, Americans were expected to be white, Protestant, and of British descent. Other European immigrants, some of whom, such as the French and the Dutch, were associated with the founding of the country, were seen as insiders, outsiders. Citizens enjoying a second-class status and expected over time to assimilate into the Anglo-Protestant culture and stock. Subsequent European immigrants, indigenous people, black slaves, Asian immigrants, Jews and others faced even greater problems. Over time and after a considerable uh, struggle, American society became more open and had no tightly organized social or cultural structure into which the immigrants had to fit, as still remains the case with almost all European countries. The American identity over time lost its narrow racial and cultural associations and became available to all its citizens. An American can now be white, black or yellow, Protestant, Catholic or Hindu, native born or a recent arrival and does not have to speak with a standard accent. Black, Asian and newly uh, naturalized immigrants have no hesitation in identifying themselves as Americans and neither their fellow citizens nor outsiders are in the least puzzled by such claims. This uncoupling of national from ethnic, religious and other identities is a remarkable historical achievement of the American people, in no way unique to them, but nevertheless one of their greatest contributions. Something similar is, big, is happening in Britain, slowly but surely. Historically, Britain had distinct ethnic, racial and religious associations. It was equated with England, whiteness and Christianity. All three are now being challenged and increasingly they are beginning to appreciate that Britain is multinational, multi-religious and multicultural. Devolution has highlighted and institutionalized Britain's internal national diversity. Race, which mattered much until the 1990s and uh, had become uh, quite important in defining Britishness, doesn't matter as much as it once did. Religion, especially Islam, is still seen as alien and threatening, but that too sh uh, should go the way of race. Britain now evokes the multicultural images of mosques and temples, elderly gentlemen walking with children to Friday prayers in response to the call of the Mohazin, Diwali celebrations in public squares, the noisy multi-ethnic streets of big cities, spicy food, saris and steel bands, as well as many hybrid images reflecting intercultural experimentation. British identity is capacious and heterogeneous enough to allow its different communities and religions and regions to find their representation in it. This makes it easier for uh, minorities and others to take ownership of Britain and build commu common bonds with each other.
A similar process also occurs in relation to national symbols, how they get pluralized and become a collective property of all Britons, irrespective of race or culture or religion. In the mid-1980s, racist groups in Britain flaunted the national flag at their meetings and sought to make it an exclusive symbol of white Britain. Not surprisingly, the ethnic minorities found it difficult to relate to the national flag, and some even felt threatened by it. Over time, many of them began to reclaim the flag by displaying it on ethnic and multi-ethnic and on ethnic and multi-ethnic occasions. This became particularly evident at the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and was reinforced at the, Athen at the Athens Olympics four years later men, when the medal-winning black athletes did the lap of honor draped in the Union Jack. Their action had a double meaning, which was not lost on the British public. The black athletes were saying that they belonged to Britain and were proud to do so. But they were also saying that Britain belonged to them as well that they were its equal citizens, and that the flag and the national anthem symbolized them as much as the rest of their fellow citizens. In other words, as immigrants come to be accepted as part of a country's national identity, the country looks at its past and constructs its historical narratives from a multicultural perspective. New facts are discovered, and the familiar ones are seen in new light. Britain, for example, at this, in Britain, for example, it is now widely accepted, something that wouldn't have been accepted 100 years ago, that black people have been here since Roman times, that after the abolition of slavery in 1833, they married local women, and a sizable section of the country's population is a product of this. It is also being appreciated more and more that Muslims and Indians have been a significant presence for at least three centuries and that there was a Muslim peer in the House of Lords as early as 1889. In short, what I am suggesting is that national story comes to be retold, the national narrative comes to be redefined. It's the way in which the history is written undergoes profound changes. And it's very striking that as people come to be accepted, and as we tend to define national identity in the present, in this broad, capacious, multicultural manner, we begin to see our own past very differently. And the past begins to look multicultural. Which is why it's, it's hardly surprising that almost all public leaders, from Gordon Brown and now Michael Gove and David Cameron, all of them talk about our mongrel nation or mongrel identity, something that would have frightened the daylight out of the Victorians. That it has almost become a matter of pride that we have been multicultural or multi-ethnic. The racial and ethnic mix of the British people and the diverse foreign influences that have shaped Britain's culture are all widely acknowledged without embarrassment and sometimes with pride. Britain begins to, as Britain begins to appreciate its multicultural history, it realizes that its current diversity is not recent or alien, but an ongoing feature of its history and comes to feel at ease with it. For their part, minorities appreciate that the country has known many like them in the past, and that they too will one day become a valued part of the country. This brings the two together on a shared common space of a shared definition of national identity. Britishness, in other words, is an ongoing historical project. 
It is about defining ourselves in such a way that we see ourselves as part of a single community. The project cannot be driven or manipulated from above. It is the work of British citizens, conducted informally in countless daily encounters through the medium of democratic dialogue and democratic choices. It is not about a checklist of values, the kind of thing that Gordon Brown used to talk about, that these are our values, and to be British, you must share those values. It is not about a checklist of values, but rather about <coughs> recognizing that we share common interest and common fate, and that a common life that we intend to build must be based on and recognize both our differences and our shared ideals. In many of the discussions of national identity, its local roots are often forgotten, and I want to make a couple of remarks about it. We live in Britain, but we also live in a particular spot in Britain, such as Bradford, or London, or Manchester. Much of our life is lived locally, and has a local character. National identity is built on the foundation of local identity. It is striking that those young Muslims who say that they do not feel British also say that they, that they cannot imagine themselves living outside Bradford or Birmingham. Local identities are generally more open and more loosely scripted than the national identity. Britishness immediately evokes historical memories of empire and lots of other things. London or Bradford doesn't. Britishness has cultural associations like race or religion or whatever, which requires a great deal of effort to remove. Local identity has no such cultural associations. London belongs to all its residents and has no religious, racial, cultural or other associations. And it has no other identity than what the Londoners choose to give it through their patterns of interaction. The local identity is more easily accepted and is less contentious than the national or British identity. It has therefore a great role to play in sustaining a multicultural society, a greater role than is generally recognized by the theorists of the nation state. I think it's very important to bear in mind, it's not fully appreciated, that a culturally homogeneous society, which is what underpins the nation-state, generally focuses on the nation-state and the national identity. In a multicultural society, the logic points in a different direction. While central identity has a role to play, local identities become extremely important and national and local identities need to be integrated and go together. Let me conclude. So far as the present of the multi-ethnic Britain is concerned, we have made considerable progress in some areas and not much in others. The future of the multi-ethnic Britain depends on three things. Our ability to consolidate and build on the progress we have made. Our ability to tackle areas of life where we have been negligent, uh, where we haven't made much progress. And finally, our sensitivity to new problems that, as I said, are beginning to appear on the horizon and our ability to confront them with requisite clarity. If the past is any guide, we can be cautiously optimistic on all three counts. I might be proved wrong, but pessimism is not a luxury that is permitted either to those of us who are politically active 
all those of us who are academics and intend to believe that the future lies with us and is a matter of our control. So thank you very much and I'll be very happy to answer questions. So, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm, I'm Rob Berkeley. I'm director at the Runnymede Trust, and uh, I feel very honoured to be uh, here with, with Lord Torek uh, on this occasion. And thank you for your lecture. We have about uh, 20, 25 minutes for questions. Um, and if I could ask uh, if people could be very succinct with their questions, uh, then we can try and get a number of them in. While you're honing uh, those things that are uh, are now buzzing in your minds. I just wanted to, to start really by, by asking, asking you, Biku. You've been involved in this work for a long time, um, from uh, the CRE, from the Rampton Report, uh, till now. I just wonder what sustains you, what keeps you, keeps you fighting on, this, on, on, on these issues and, and, and thinking that these issues are important things in which to invest your time. I will answer that kind of question. Hey. What keeps you going? <laughs> I think partly self-interest because I live in this country, I have children and grandchildren, I want to make sure that this society is reasonably stable and safe for them and partly the kind of moral commitment one has to the kind of world one would like to see. But I think you have something deeper in mind, have you? No, I, just, I, I think that given that a lot of people here are uh, interested in, in fighting for race equality, just, just hearing, kind of, what keeps you, what keeps you going, keeps keeps that, uh, those ideas at the forefront of your mind is, is, is useful. Well, look, I haven't given as much of my life or as much of my energy to the cause of race equality as I should and could have, because one has other demands and you have to allocate your resources uh, as fits in with your uh, expectations of life. But in my case, I think it's partly. Uh, simply as somebody who stands for certain values. I think one wants to see a society in which those values are, are realized. And that would be a simple, moral, rather preachy kind of answer, but that's the sort of answer I give. Okay. Okay. So turning to, to the audience, uh, some questions. It takes questions upstairs first. Uh, in, in the front here. Um, yeah. Hello, Biku, Sabeda here. Um, Perhaps a delicate question, um, given that Trevor Phillips was one of the commissioners on the Commission on Multi-Ethnic Britain. But I wondered, um, what's your response to Trevor Phillips' comment a couple of years ago that multiculturalism is dead? We'll take a couple, a couple more. Uh, maybe just next to you in, in the front here. Mark Wadsworth, editor of thelatest.com, and I'm glad you tackled the issue of um, Muslim youth alienation. You didn't talk about young African Caribbean shooting each other. Maybe that's something that people like myself will have to deal with. Uh, my point really is about the 27 black and minority ethnic MPs that are in Parliament. There are actually 39 of them in the House of Lords and how useless they are despite the black section campaign that I led from 85 to 87 to put them there. Um, we don't have BME MPs, we have MPs that happen to be BME. That's the issue, isn't it? 
They don't get off their black and brown asses um, because the political movements aren't there to make the demands and to give them the support. And I'd like your view on how we can mobilize them and get them to fight for the black agenda. Thank you. And then a uh, question just in the middle here, guy in the, in the grey jumper. That's right. Hi, Darren Williams from Birkbeck. Um, my question is a little bit more specific, I think, um, <laughs> to something that you said towards the end around integrating uh, national identity and, and local identity. I was hoping that you could expand on those comments because I, I can understand the fragmentation uh, that you'd have at a local level and how that could, in your eyes, be reconciled with a, a much broader population across um, you know, the country or, or the nation. Last question: the Local and national identity, and then talk about how the poor people integrated. Yeah, I think you you alluded to um, integrating the national identity with local identity, and I wanted you to expand on that that uh, comment a little bit further to just explain what you mean and how that can be achieved from where people identify with the local, how they can then identify with the national because it's such a, a broader area. Yeah. Well, first was about, uh, can you hear me at the back? Not very well, all right. The first question, I hope you heard all the three questions. One was about Trevor Phillips saying some years ago that uh, multiculturalism is dead. Uh, now, without commenting on what uh, Trevor is, a, um, his own personal view. I mean, my uh, difficulty with that kind of remark would be, what does it mean to say that multiculturalism or anything else is dead? I mean, it used to be said socialism is dead. Hmm? What can that possibly mean? It can mean that it is no longer operative, that is no longer held as a value. Now, that's what uh, uh, Trevor or anyone else has in mind. I don't agree. Because my difficulty has been of two kinds, or has been at two levels. One, when people talk about multiculturalism, they use the term in two opposite senses. And I was very uh, keen to, uh, to distinguish those two senses. One is to say multiculturalism means that each culture is a silo, is a world unto itself, and cannot be judged or criticized from outside. In other words, some form of cultural relativism or ghettoization. There is another sense of multiculturalism where it has the opposite meaning, which is no culture is perfect, every culture has its limitations, and it is only in the course of a dialogue with others that it becomes aware of its own strengths and limitations and acquires access to the resources of other cultures. So one is an interactive definition of a view of multiculturalism. The other is this relativist or ghettoized view, and I made it very clear that in this country, Going back to uh, the beginning of the discourse on multiculturalism, which is Roy Jenkins and Swan and others, it is the second view of multiculturalism that we have taken. And my report embodies that particular view of multiculturalism. Now, if that is so, then what is the alternative? What is the alternative to different cultural communities talking to each other and evolving a common culture? 
So the idea that multiculturalism is dead or whatever doesn't make any sense to me at all. I can make sense of the fact that sometime the whole thing has take, been taken so far that diversity is privileged or overvalued at the expense of commonalities. And as I said, that's the way in which multicultural policy has been implemented. Fault lies with the way in which it is in the way in which it is implemented, not with the policy itself. And I ask you a very simple question, whether it's Trevor or anyone else. Forget the word multiculturalism, because that's a purely verbal debate. Which of the policies that we recommend in the report or which we have followed in uh, this country, which of these policies would you reject? Would you reject multicultural education? Would you reject the, uh, some incorporation of minority history in our, in, in our schools? Would you reject the fact that uh, if children, if they don't eat a uh, particular kind of food, they should be served differently if, if a Hindu child in a school doesn't eat beef or whatever? Or if you are trying in a court of law, you, the idea of duress, the example I gave, lots of other things. The, all these are ways of recognizing where people are coming from and accommodating their cultural requirements within certain limits. Now, would one want to reject all this? My own feeling generally is that those who say multiculture means dead uh, are simply saying the word multiculturalism is boo, we are not going to use it, but if you look at the content of what they are recommending, by and large, they would end up recommending the same set of policies as the multiculturalists. On the second question, uh, which is about uh, my colleagues in the other place, as Bob and I would say, and, uh, and some of us, of course, yes, now I think, uh, how many are there in the House of Lords with the new appointments, we are 43. 43, 10 are Muslims. Now, your question is whether it's in the House of Commons or in the House of Lords, uh, are we making any difference? Is that the question? Because there's many sides. Are we making any difference to the condition of black and brown people? Well, it's not for me to say uh, whether or not we are successfully making a difference, but I would say two things. I think as I, and I was partly anticipating the question and answering, answering it by saying, minority presence is not important in itself. It is important for two reasons. A, it makes it easier for minority communities to identify with public institutions. It has a symbolic value. And it also makes it possible for those public institutions to hear a diverse range of voices and views. Now, if you recognize both, then I think by the very fact of being there, and very fact of the process that was adopted in order to get them there, they have made uh, is an important contribution. Now, if then you say, but have they really been pushing for black causes? My uh, response to that would be, some have, some haven't. But they are not there simply to push black causes. And I think to suggest that simply because I happen to be an Indian, I should only speak on Indian voices or happen to be an Asian, and therefore I should only speak about Asian, Asian issues, would be to um, impose upon me a role which I may not wish to take. 
And on the third question was local and civic identity. I mean, that's a complex question. And what I'm suggesting is this. You see, when we talk about, I'm British, what is the logic of that statement? At one level, I'm saying, I belong to this country, I live here, and you know, I owe allegiance to Britain and its authority. Fine. But at the same time, Britain is not a homogeneous space. There is a particular spot within Britain, which I occupy, and from the prism of which I look at Britain. In my case, I live in Hull. There are other people who live in other areas. They were born there, they were raised there. And therefore, they relate to Britain through the medium of their locality, the city in which they live. And what I'm suggesting is that when we talk about national identity, we shouldn't simply think of making an unmediated leap from who I am to the country. That is also this mediating factor of local identity. And that local identity should be nurtured because it's the default position. And that's very important. I don't think we fully appreciate what consequence it has. It is perfectly possible for someone to say, look, Britain is involved in disastrous foreign policy. I don't like it, whatever, whatever, whatever. But at the same time, one would say, but there is a spot within Britain where I belong, which matters to me, which is my home, which is where my parents live, my children are going to live, and I am attached to it. Therefore, I would not want any kind of harm to be done to Britain. Not because I care for Britain per se, but because I care for this spot. And this came out very strongly when many young Germans were interviewed in Frankfurt. They said, you know, the Germans have treated us very badly, we are alienated from German society, they call us you know, plastic Germans or whatever. But Frankfurt? Oh, that's my home, I can't imagine myself living outside. Now, how you can make that conceptual dislocation is important. And we need to recognize that. That's the point I'm making, that recognize civic identity, if not as a building block of national identity, at least recognize it as a default position which can help a country in relation to people who feel alienated from the country at large. Okay. Thanks, Vicky. There's some, just some questions from, from this floor now. There's a question at the, at the back there, and then we'll if we take the next question over here. My name is Cathy Baldwin. I'm a social anthropologist from the University of Oxford, and I've got two brief questions. Um, the first one is that you mentioned that common, um, commonalities in public and political spheres in Britain should be defined not by common values, but by common interests and common fate. I wondered who should be defining what those comprised of. It seems to me there's a power issue. And my second question was, uh, I've just completed two years of research in Swindon looking at um, people from the English second-generation Polish and second-generation Indian Sikh communities uh, and the way that they feel about notions of identity, community and belonging at all levels. Um, and you mentioned that in um, places like London, Bradford and Manchester, which are known for having... Um, a large visible ethnic minority population that um, ethnic minority members had a strong sense of local identity. My findings in Swindon were the complete opposite. 
It's um, a regional town with a much smaller visible and non-visible ethnic minority population makeup. Um, the, the British Sikhs that I worked with, for them, um, the strongest um, articulation of identity was either British Asian, British Sikh or Indian. So that's an identity with a national and an ethnic component. And amongst second generation Polish people, uh, their strongest sense of identity was Polish. Um, English people, Poles and Sikhs, all acknowledged that there was a, a Swindonian identity um, widely talked about in the town, but my Polish and Sikh informants weren't remotely interested in it and didn't relate to it at all. Um, so their identity articulations were much more at the national level. I wondered how that tied in with your finding. There's a question just here in the back. I lost the second question that she was asking. Namaste, Bikuji. Thank you for a wonderful talk. It's Itesh Satcher from SOAS. I just have a question about British identities. If British identity is multi-ethnic or multicultural, what about English, Scottish, Northern Irish, Welsh? And related to the previous question, if British identity seems to be multicultural in the urban centers, what about rural British identity? Is there another question down there? Just one again at the back. I'm trying to remember what my question was now. There was like a few things I wanted to say. Um, I was just interested, you talked about uh, balance. Uh, I was interested in what you thought some of the processes were that you've noted that create that balance and what is the nature of the dialogue that you mentioned as well? What do you see that as the conditions for dialogue to possibly create that? Thank you. Was it just another question here? Thank you. Kelly Clark from UCL. I wondered if you could uh, describe the role that you envisage for the national cr school curriculum and the school environment in the promotion but also the protection of multiculturalism. And school curriculum? Yeah, school Sounds curriculum and school environment for multiculturalism. Let's take a couple more. Uh, we'll take maybe one more round. So, do you want to? Yeah, sure. Answer those, oh, you want me to answer? Yeah, yeah. yeah, if you answer those, then we'll, we'll take one more round. And, and right, I'll be very brief, uh, simply because I would love to hear some more comments and questions. Common values, common interest. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it is that the questioner had in mind. Uh, Sorry, by how successful? Okay, we'll see if we can uh, just move the mic forward. That might be easier. No, I think um, she couldn't hear the question. Right, but the, but the question was, um, was who you, you, you spoke about common, common fate rather than uh, a list of common values. Who decides what that common, common fate might be? Now, who defines common values? Is that right, very briefly? Well, I don't know where to start because this is a, at one level, it's a very large philosophical question. 
uh, and I have answered it uh, in my work in the following way. A society doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has a certain character. It has a certain moral identity, fuzzy but nevertheless some kind of moral identity. And in so far it has a moral identity, it has what I call operative public values, those values in terms of which it conducts its affairs and which are embodied in its institutional practices. That is the starting point. We don't start with tabula rasa. We start with those values that are there. There is no uh, uh, way, other way of uh, discussing those values, uh, of arriving at those values than through a, a democratic dialogue where we, try to where we try to persuade each other. And my argument is that there are certain values for which we can give fairly compelling reasons. We might be able to argue that these values have a universal relevance in which, and we talk about human rights and so on. Or we might say, well, we don't want, we can't, or we don't wish to claim universal validity for those values, but at least we wish to argue that we in this country are persuaded by those values and intend to organize our lives around that. I mean, that would be my short answer. I can imagine a counter, uh, a rejoinder to that, and I would be able to come to that as well. But this is broadly <laughs> what I would, what I, where, where I would stop for the time being, unless you want to come back. On the uh, question of British identity uh, and rural areas and so on, uh, again one can handle it at various levels. Uh, I'm not interested in, I mean rural areas will have a local identity and that identity would be the building block of national identity in the same way that I was giving examples of London or Bradford or whatever. The important point we want to make uh, uh, at the philosophical level is as follows. When we talk about being a British, you can mean two different things. You can either abstract away, strip away different identities and try to arrive at some kind of abstract universal, saying Britishness means, you know, being committed to Britain or whatever. Or you can recognize it as what Hegel would call, and I hope I can use that name in this gathering, a concrete universal, where identity is not abstracted away from differences, but incorporates those differences within itself. So, one could say, I am a British Muslim, or I am a British Indian. This would mean that I define Britishness in such a way that it leaves enough space for my Indian identity. You might call it hyphenated identity or uh, whatever. In Britain we don't very much talk in terms of hyphenated identities, but we embody this hyphen into the concept of Britishness itself, so that I could be, I'm British, but at the same time the Britishness is so capacious as to include the Scots, the Welsh, the Indians, the Hindus and Muslims and so on. There was one question about school curriculum. I think I have missed one or two other questions. But there was school curriculum, I'd, again, I don't know where to start because I wasn't talking about it. Uh, I mean, we have a, a long chapter in the report and some of us have written about multicultural education. Uh, now, is that the, what the questioner wanted me to, to answer? <coughs> well, where does one start? I would say two things. First of all, multicultural education is not just about curriculum. It is about the kind of ethos you create in the school. So that once you enter the school, you already imbibe a certain atmosphere. Atmosphere where diversity is recognized, valued, cherished, and so on. 
ethos through the composition of the staff, ethos through the kind of uh, ceremonies, daily events that take place. I mean, this will be one uh, aspect of multicultural education. Content is a small part of it. I'll come to that in a minute, but multicultural in the sense of creating a certain kind of ethos. In terms of content, I uh, wouldn't think of multicultural education as simply kind of Cook's conducted tour of every part of the world. Basically, and I, I, I see multicultural education, apart from a certain amount of information that you might have about other cultures who have come to settle in your midst, basically it is about recognizing that my own view of life, my own way of life is contingent and that difference is imaginable, that things can be different. Once you begin to recognize that, it opens a lot of doors to you. And this I would take as a starting point. So that, for example, I would see a good multicultural education as one where a 10-year-old boy would be taught, let's say, for a term or a year, the history or geography of one other country than his own. And just to immerse himself into the history of that country would get him to recognize that normal activities of daily life can be conducted very differently and can be justified equally strongly as his own. Now this recognition that things can be different and that difference doesn't imply pathology or deviation. The equal recognition of the legitimacy of differences, that to me is the essence of multicultural education. How do you achieve it? I mean there are different theories about it. But I would say this is the basic goal. Thank you. I, I'm conscious that we're going to run out of time if we go for another round. So I suppose what I want to ask you is, published a report 10 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, the world's moved on, things have changed. Um, what, what should be our priorities in the next period, during this parliament, for example? Uh, you mean promote polit political priorities? Political priorities. What, what, what should happen in the next three, five years? And what, and what should we be doing about it? You mean me or well, in general? Us. Maybe, suggest, maybe, maybe some suggestions for government. Yeah, I would want to do two things. I am increasingly beginning to realize, I don't know if the High Commissioner or my good friend Bob would agree, politicians are a very muddled lot. I think their capacity to think in a longer perspective or to define the issues in an intelligent manner is extremely limited. It is from one crisis to another. Uh, I mean, if Iraq, I feel very strongly about, but if any, in, if in any other walk of life, if a politician had handled his business in the same way in which the presidents and prime ministers have handled our foreign policy or Iraq, they would have been sacked. But in politics, you can get away with all kinds of things. So the first thing for me, increasingly, I'm beginning, I'm beginning to realize as I sit in the uh, Lords and, and watch what's happening, is how little people have thought through the issues that they are dealing with. They are prisoners of a certain language, which they have inherited. They never step back and ask, is this the language in which I want to formulate the question? Are these the assumptions? Uh, what are the assumptions I bring to my subject? Anything that you do, whether it's education policy or whatever. First thing, Bob, therefore, I would want to insist is for us to be able to anticipate large questions 
that are coming up on the horizon and start thinking about them as deeply as we can. I feel very worried about, as I say, the role of religion, uh, which is coming up in a big way, nothing to do with Muslims only, Christians. The big society is going to bring religion in a very big way, so that they will function, they will take on more and more of the function. What do we do? Should the secular state enter into partnership with religious institutions? And if re these religious institutions then say, we will, or we will privilege people of our own faith, as faith schools have done, what would be your response? So the first thing I would want to do is to get some kind of intellectual clarity about the issues. Having done that, then obviously I would think it uh, the job of all of us concerns citizens to make sure that certain lines which we recognize as right are fought for. Now in the field of race I think there is a lot of work to be done. Claire uh, in her opening remarks talked about how far we need to go. I, mean, I didn't want to go through that but I uh, initially I thought I would spend the whole lecture 40 odd minutes that you had given me taking you through statistics about educational achievements and economic achievements of different groups and who is falling behind and who is not. Then I thought it uh, was PowerPoint, which and I'm, I'm technologically illiterate, so I didn't want to use PowerPoint. And it will also be rather too academic and boring. Uh, but if one went through all that, you would see that some communities are stuck in a cul-de-sac. We need to identify those communities and not to be doing something about them. I think we talked about young Muslims and, and, and the way in which they feel deeply alienated. Now the question is, uh, what do we need to do? Now a similar sort of problem had appeared in relation to the Afro-Caribbean communities. And there the supplementary schools, the Afro-Caribbean churches took control of the situation and say, told parents, rather than depend on the state or society for every problem that we have, how can we take control of our own lives and what should we be doing? So we need to be spending quite a bit of time addressing specific communities and suggesting what they can do to take charge of their own problems, while at the same time uh, addressing the wider society about what it can do. So this is the kind of multi-pronged strategy which would attract me. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, a great example of uh, being thoughtful about policy. Uh, can we thank Lord Brett for his contribution to And to crown our evening, I just want to, to invite Sarah Isal, the Deputy Director of Runnymede, uh, to tell you a little bit about what we're doing at the Runnymede Trust. Thank you very much. I'm conscious that some people probably can't see me behind this gigantic lectern, so I'm going to try and speak up and at least you can hear me. Um, well, it's very tough to follow <laughs> what a, a really inspiring uh, presentation and discussion. Um, I just want to give you a few concluding thoughts on um, the situation and how Runnymede fits into it. Um, last year, our director, um, Rob, speaking at the 2009 Jim Rose Lecture, concluded the event by pointing out that we live in interesting times. Well, today we not only live in interesting times, we live in challenging ones. Recent arguments on race equality have uh, focused on racism being a problem of the past. I'm sure you're aware of those. 
that it is given too much focus today and that inequality is more likely caused by other factors such as socioeconomic background, class or sometimes even the cultural choices made by ethnic minority communities themselves. To claim that racism is a thing of the past in Britain would be as ridiculous and factually incorrect as saying that there has been no progress achieved in the last decades regarding the situation of ethnic minorities in our country. However, improvement does not mean that the problem has disappeared. Today, racism is enacted in different ways. It affects people differently, um, and it requires a response that is more sophisticated and subtle, but no less direct. And Runnymede excels in developing intelligent responses to the problems of racism, continuing its legacy and that of Jim Rose from 1968. Um, so how do we at Runnymede respond to these claims and how importantly do we respond to racism? We do that by exposing racism um, and showing through independent evidence-based research, and that is particularly important, that it continues, that racism continues to affect the daily lives of people. And we are demonstrating just that through our research in the fields of education, financial inclusion, criminal justice, the arts, participation, and European policy. We are making the point that race still matters and we will keep fighting to keep race equality on the agenda. And we hope that this research will be used not just by ourselves, but also by all of you, to make that point again and again, and to affect policy change in various ways. I just want to give you a few reminders of how and why race matters. I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with those. But also to tell you what Runnymede is doing to come up with some of the solutions. First, we all know the statistic black people are almost eight times more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. This is why, together with other key organizations across the country, we set up Stopwatch, an action group that aims to reform and improve stop and search practices by the police, a particularly relevant exercise at the time when we hear repeated calls for less paperwork and less bureaucracy in the police practice. Another area where racism can hardly be ignored is that of the treatment of asylum seekers. Recently, this was exemplified by the death of Jimmy Mubenga at the hands of three security guards whilst being deported to Angola. In this context, it is particularly timely that this year, um, the Information Center about Asylum and Refugees has joined Renimede, providing vital research and information that is both accessible and impartial in the field of asylum and refugees. A few other facts. Up to 60% of black and Asian people have no savings. 70% of Bangladeshi children live in poverty. Black Caribbean pupils are three times more likely to be excluded from school than their white counterparts. A government commissioned report in 2009 found that there was still blatant racial discrimination in recruitment practices, and the list goes on. And for each of these findings, there is research coming out of Runnymede showing the extent of the situation in a thoughtful way, and importantly, how it can be remedied. So, challenging times indeed, but we have made progress, and I'm going to refer to something which was referred to before, this year's election, which saw the number of elected MPs from ethnic minority background nearly double from 14 to 27, encouraging, if slow, signs that our parliament is slowly catching up with the reality of our society. 
And Runnymede has been very active in the past year in engaging with uh, Parliament. We have revived and we hold the Secretariat for the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Race and Community, which is chaired by Diane Abbott. And we are building important links with MPs and peers, championing the issues in parliamentary debates and questions that we have raised in our research. So this is perhaps a short, small answer and contribution to what they are doing um, for our cause. We are also keen to look not just at the present, but at what the situation will be in future. And an important component of our work has been to encourage dialogue and debate on race equality with a wide range of people. For instance, through our project Generation 3.0, we are working with young people in Birmingham, engaging them in discussions between themselves and older people to talk about their experiences of racism and capturing this on film, films which will be available on our website in the new year. We are thinking about the future shape of our public services. We are investigating whether the proposed big society can be a racially just society. In addition, this year we set up the Runny Meat 360, a national network connecting aspiring and established leaders in race equality across the country and across sectors. And this is vital if we are going to keep people engaged and inspired to achieve a successful multi-ethnic Britain. So this is just a snapshot of the excellent work that the Runnymede team is doing at present and I invite you to go on our great website which is highlighted there on behind Rob um, to read our reports to watch the films we've produced to listen to the podcasts we've recorded um, all these demonstrate that despite the challenging climate of cuts and statements that racism is on its way out, there is still a long way to go before we can claim to have achieved our founders' initial goal 42 years ago of nailing the lie of racism. And just one final word. Throughout the years we've been able to do this work thanks to your support and we will need your support to continue doing this work in future. So outside this room you will see some information on how you can get involved in various ways uh, please pick up this information and do not hesitate to speak to us, um, any member of staff, to discuss this further. And we really look forward to working with you in the next 10 years on these issues. Thank you very much.